welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I want to welcome you to this uh, this session. Uh, it's a two-part session, I believe. And uh, Is that right? Two parts, I think. And uh, this is the first session of this. Uh, this this idea came about uh, to do this session with, with Steve uh, because as... Several of us in the Nashville area listened to and heard the Sobriety 101 uh, recordings that that Steve had had done. Uh, was about two years ago, 2014, I believe. So two to three years ago, and uh, it was in Nashville and uh, Memphis. Memphis. It was in Memphis, and there was a, a quite a contingency of people that got a lot of good things out of the readings. So as we were preparing for the SOS, uh, several people suggested that that. We look at bringing Steve in and doing a mini version of that here at the uh, marathon. So I've known Steve for about uh, 16 years now, 17 years. Uh, we both came into the program together around 2008 or uh, 2001, and uh, have been uh, you know we lost contact for a little while, and, and now we've uh, picked that back up. And about once a month, I guess I get to get down to Memphis and, and sit and visit with Steve and uh, and. Uh, it's been a pleasure to know him, and so with that, I'm going to kind of turn it over and let Steve do his thing. So, thank you for being here. Thanks, Preston. I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic, <laughs> and I would uh, I would love it if you would join me in a moment of silence followed by the serenity of prayer. Serenity of prayer. God, grant me the serenity. To accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I will not mind be done. Um, as I said, I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic. Thank you for inviting me to be here, Preston, and, and thank you all for, for um, joining, joining us this morning. Um, um, I, I did these uh, Sobriety 101 uh, talks in, in 2014. Uh, and then 2015 uh, in Memphis, as Preston said, and I don't like listening to myself um, on a recording. Uh, something feels feels strange about it, um, and so I don't really remember much <laughs> of, of what I exactly said on those recordings, um, um, other than it was based on the literature, and I have a kind of a foggy recollection of who was there, and and um, and that we did did readings out of the white book and big book, and um, um, but but I did listen to a little bit of the first recording, um, uh, to to kind of just get a flavor because I wanted to try and as much as possible fulfill the request that was made to kind of uh, in some way replicate something about that, and um, when I listened to um, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes of the first um, talk, I had a very strange sensation. Um, 
got close to tears, um, and the reason I did was because I heard something in my voice um, in the way I was speaking in 2014 or 15 uh, that I have maybe recently lost a little bit of a connection with. Um, I had a greater or at least a more more present sense of conscious contact, at least in the moments when I made those recordings. And and it was a strange sense um, to kind of hear hear my voice talking about the program of recovery in a way that was ministering to me in the moment that I was hearing it. Um, a little bit about where I am now. Um, I am struggling with some uh, issues related to trauma that have not surfaced uh, in the same way uh, earlier in my recovery. Um, best I can tell, um, I'm doing what I can to deal with that and cope with that and stay sober and grow through that. Um, it's really uncomfortable sometimes. Um, there's uh, feelings, uh, sensations in my body that are connected to emotions and negative thoughts, and I can't control them when they get triggered. Um, but I am learning some things to give me the ability to stay centered. And um, and so um, uh, I just wanted to lead with that um, and say that I, I am still a sexaholic um, and um, I need to keep coming back. Um, I'm wearing this suit. Um, I don't know if a few of you have heard the 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 the, the, te- the recordings. Um, I. I was wearing this suit when I made that recording, and and I explained the reason for it, and I had completely forgotten. But this is the suit I wore to court uh, when I was one year sober. And the day after my one-year sobriety anniversary, I had a sentencing hearing. Um, Because in February of that year, I had had my plea hearing and had pled guilty to three counts of statutory rape versus a 15-year-old male victim. And um, this is not the only crime I committed in the pursuit of lust uh, in in my disease, but it was the only one I was uh, prosecuted for. And um, as a result of my conviction, um, I lost a license to practice medicine uh, and and my livelihood, I lost uh, a marriage. I was sued uh, by my victim and his family. Uh, I was bankrupt, uh, declared bankruptcy, and still owed hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loan debt from medical school, which I had yet to pay, repay. Um, I I lost my family. I lost my home in in East Tennessee. Um, I I spent four months in treatment uh, in my first year of sobriety before the hearing. Um, And and at the conclusion of my treatment, I was instructed to um, live in a halfway house for at least 90 days, uh, get a sponsor, work all 12 steps in an S program and an NA or AA program. uh, to get therapy for sexual addiction and therapy for sex offending um, and get a psychiatrist who also had qualifications 
in both of those. And the only place I could do that in Tennessee at the time, I had to remain in Tennessee because I was being prosecuted in Tennessee, um, was in Nashville. So after three months of treatment, I moved to Nashville one day after getting out of treatment. And and I never lived in that home again in Johnson City. I didn't know that was going to happen, but that's how it turned out. Um, and I was in that halfway house for four years. I was on probation for two years. And I was a registered sex offender for uh, about 12 or 13 years. Uh, and then, by God's grace, in 2015, right around the time I was making these recordings, I think, um, uh, I, I, my, my time that I was required to, to register uh, was completed. Um, but um, I am a sick man, not a bad man. I am a, a sick man trying to get well, and I am, by God's grace, uh, sober since August the 5th of 2001. Um, so the other reason I'm wearing this suit um, is that the men who have sponsored me and have given me uh, direction in the program of recovery um, were old, old school AA guys, and every time they were asked to speak, they um, would show up in in Sunday clothes, and I, I never wear suits. I do not like wearing suits. I don't wear suits to church. I, I will sometimes wear them to I wear a tie to a business interview, but um, I hardly ever wear a suit. But it seemed very much the right thing for me to do to wear to wear a suit um, uh, to to this um, for those reasons. Um, with that lengthy preamble out of the way, I hope there's still time left for me to, to kind of um, start talking about uh, the program of recovery that we have in SA. Um, there is a, a passage from the white book. Does anybody have it? Um, yeah, I'd love to have have you 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 read that, Preston. Sure. Um, uh, just yeah, just read the from the from the top of page seventy seven in the white book. Okay. How it works: the practical reality. This title is adapted from Chapter Five of Alcoholics Anonymous, entitled "How It Works." The books Alcoholics Anonymous and the Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions, the Twelve and Twelve, constitute the basic text of the original Twelve Step Program. This section is not intended to be a comprehensive exposition of the steps. Our aim here is to try to get at the essential purpose of each step or group of steps so they can be readily put into action. The SA program is a program of action. Can I, can I interrupt one moment there? Um, to me, what this passage says um, in, um, uh, in, the, in our white book, it, it explains the um, relationship that our fellowship and program have with the program uh, of recovery of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it turns out that our founder, uh, 44 years tomorrow, uh, April the 22nd, 1974, there was an article in Time magazine on alcoholism. And, and our founder in the L.A. area, I think Simi Valley, uh, California, read this article and he knew this is what he needed and it 
mentioned AA and he got in touch with AA and he began, he searched and found some alcoholics that were willing to work with him as a non-alcoholic and teach him the AA program of recovery so that he could apply it to his alcohol, which was lust. And, and out of that relationship, you know, our fellowship, everything that has come before our literature was written by Roy. And, um, and even the, his, Roy's decision to make, um, to, to write AA for permission to create a new version of the 12 steps for, for our fellowship. Um, was hinged on on a conversation he had with his grand sponsor, Chuck C. Um, uh, Wiley, would you mind reading right there where it says January 24th, 1979? Yeah. Uh, Roy, Boyce, <clears throat> I can Roy goes to Laguna Beach and sees AA Chuck C. Roy sponsor sponsor. Discuss whether to start SA meetings and to give some wisdom on the whole matter. Chuck's first reaction is to insist on insist the concept, but as though arrested in mid-sentence, he paused, goes silent, and then completely reverses himself. Chuck winds up not only giving, giving his blessing about four hours worth of the best of Chuck C, including against Roy's remonstrance. Uh, no, don't wait for a partner. God is your partner. Little did Chuck C. know that <clears throat> at this slightest variation, Roy would have dropped the whole thing. Thank you, Wiley. Okay, and I'm not sure that made made it in the mic, but what I, uh, what, what Wiley read from was uh, a booklet called Beginnings, Notes and Origins, Notes on the Origin and Early Growth of SA, and, and what this uh, conversation represents. Roy was constantly praying for and looking for someone to kind of play the role that Dr. Bob played with Bill Wilson in the founding of AA, a, a, a partner with whom to to begin um, the the 12-step work and, and to start the fellowship. And that's how AA began in Akron, Ohio, back in 1935. Now, um, um, and so, so this is why he went to this this uh, uh, guy, this Chuck C, who is a very famous AA speaker. He's given some marvelous talks, and and those talks have been transcribed into a book called A New Pair of Glasses, which I recommend um, highly. Um, but um, uh, Ch- Chuck um, started to resist the idea of starting the SA Fellowship. But then he kind of went into a little trance, and then he changed his mind completely and 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 told uh, Roy, "No, don't wait for a partner. God is your partner." And 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 he and Roy says, "If if Chuck hadn't have said that, he he would have dropped the whole idea, and we wouldn't have a fellowship." And so, um, uh, for me personally, um, this is really significant. Um, when I got to Nashville and, and worked the steps originally, I was actually worked the steps with the guy in, a, in another fellowship and didn't work the steps out of the big book. But after several years, um, uh, I felt uh, uh, of several years of sobriety, um, I felt um, the need for um, something deeper. And I found a man in, in an AA group in, in West Nashville 
who uh, was very, very uh, well. Uh, he had been taught the big book by some of the best teachers in the country. <laughs> some of the people who came after Chuck C. Chuck passed away in the uh, 70s, I believe. Um, uh, but um, uh, and and so I began to learn uh, how to work the steps out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, my my teacher, uh, my, my my former AA sponsor Scott, um, would take. He would say, I, I'm, "I always take my books to class." He would always bring his big book to the meeting, and he was 25 years sober when I met him. He had probably heard how it works read, I don't know, a few thousand times. He probably could have recited it from memory. But every time it was read at the beginning of a meeting, he would have his book open to page 58, and he would follow along. And and he explained to me that he did that because his mind will play tricks on him and try to edit things, try to change the words. And my my mind, my brain also thinks it's qualified to make improvements and, you know, substitutions and so forth that mean the same thing. And, and so a lot of the things that I've learned are about kind of a rule for myself, and not everybody does this. That's okay. Um, if your sponsor says something that, you know, that, that disagree, if your sponsor disagrees with me, he's right and I'm wrong. The Chuck, I mean, Scott would always say this when he when he talked. Um, God blesses sponsorship. But I heard the things from Scott that I needed to hear, and and so um, for me, there's a great deal of attention that I learned to pay to the exact words that are on the page in the Big Book, and to get my own best thinking out of the way, and just let God use what's on the page and me follow. And that's that's kind of a snapshot of the change in attitude that's necessary for me to get into the program of recovery. And the next little piece of that page of the white book talks about that change in attitude. Um, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, if you, yeah great. Um, please. Second paragraph. Oh, no. Until we actually? Yeah. Until we actually experience no, right there. Our way of life. Our way of life. I'll blame no, no, no. We're on the wrong page. I'm sorry. My bad. Everything. Everything. Okay. Everything begins with sobriety. Without sobriety, there's no program of recovery. But without reversing the deadly traits that underlie our addiction, there's no positive and lasting sobriety. To recover from a life based on wrong attitudes self-obsession, separation, false connections, blindness, and spiritual death requires a program of action that includes a fundamental change in attitude, character, change, union, the true connection, self-awareness, and spiritual life. Working the principles of the steps as a new way of living was has made this happen for us, no matter how well they are explained, understood, or believed. However, the steps mean nothing unless they are actually worked out in our thinking and living. The steps don't work unless we work them. Okay. Um, 
This paragraph begins with the words, everything begins with sobriety. And I, and I think that is one of the most important <laughs> sentences in the paragraph. Um, I often kind of miss that when I read. I think it, I think it took me several years to really notice that sentence, um, that everything begins with sobriety. Um, as I mentioned before, I've got I've got uh, PTSD. I, I'm a member of AA and NA. Um, I've got issues with codependency, um, all kinds of things. Um, I have recovery, some concept of recovery for those issues. I have a sponsee in Memphis that that has a recovery from cancer. He's a cancer survivor. There are many kinds of recovery, but in these rooms, I try to focus on SA recovery. And and when it says everything begins with sobriety, without sobriety, there is no program of recovery. I think it is important for our message to emphasize uh, that sobriety and recovery are not separate concepts. I don't have a recovery that goes along and then my sobriety goes off and on. If I'm not, if I am a sexaholic and I am not sober, then I am not in recovery. And, and, and that's a very important concept. But as it says, it's just the beginning. And when, um, when, if I am going to continue the program of recovery, all of the steps are geared towards helping me find the things inside myself that are blocking me from this change of attitude, which is sometimes called a spiritual awakening. It's sometimes called a complete psychic change. It's a, you know, a vast rearrangement of <clears throat> beliefs and attitudes. And, and I like, I, t I find a lot of significance in words. I've been taught to pay a lot of attention to words. And so where it says here in the middle of the paragraph, to recover from a life based on wrong attitudes, self-obsession, separation, false connections, blindness, and spiritual death requires a program of action that includes a fundamental change in attitude, character change, union, the true connection, self-awareness, and spiritual life. This word based is very significant to me because the same word is used in the instructions for the steps in the big book. Uh, the big book on page 60 <clears throat> says, oh, it's, just, it's just real short, so I'll just kind of point it out. Um, it mentions that the first requirement, and this is step three instructions, is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success on that basis, on the basis of self-will, we are almost in collision with somebody or something, even though our motives are good. And um, so, so there is a basis of self-will. A little later in the big book, on page 68, it talks about we are on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. There is a change in our basis for living that is necessary. And what does that mean? Um, for me, it means there's a change in the way that I make decisions about what to do next. And, and that's why it's been 
a significant kind of uh, symbolic act, but but uh, more than just a symbolic act for me to focus on the words on the page and let them direct me. Let myself. I, it's a choice on my part to to let myself uh, be directed by this, and and rather than to direct, to try to direct the the. Uh, these wrong attitudes, the self-obsession, separation, all these things for me are part of what the big book calls the basis of self-will. I'm trying to get my way. And and I'm living as if that's what the solution to my problems are. I'll be fine as long as I get what I want. And the crazy thing about it is that if I do this long enough, I really just can't even see that that's what I'm doing. I think when I came to this, you know, when I came to my bottom in 2001 and I was ready to put a bullet in my brain, I was so desperate I became willing to, to tell things to, 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 to health professionals that I knew would result in prosecution. Um, I was still still was steeped in those uh, delusional attitudes and and beliefs that I was one of the more honest people that I knew. For instance, I could not see what a liar I was. I thought that I genuinely cared for other people and was was a lot less self-centered or selfish than many people. And I could not see how self-obsessed and how self-absorbed I was, but my actions were telling on me, and you all could see it when you learned about my actions, uh, and it was a painful process to encounter that and learn, you know, the nat- the real nature of my malady. It's not what my parents did or didn't do when I was growing up. It's not... Um, how my ex-wife did or didn't treat me. Um, it's not what the courts did or didn't recognize about my efforts to recover and improve. It's not about whether or not I kept my medical license. When I live on the old basis, I act as if that's where my security lies. I won't be okay unless I get her to understand or I get them to let me keep my license, or I get that bill paid, and I give away my power. I give I, I give power to, I put, I make these things my higher power, and, and I either fight or I sink into despair, but I end up a big loser. And... Um, I don't still can't see why it is so difficult to do this simple thing or why it took me so long and why I had to wreck so much of my life and others whose only mistake was trusting me. Um, I can't say that I've yet fully experienced the promise we shall not regret the past. 
But I can say that I do not wish to shut the door on it. Because I must remember where my disease took me. Um, okay. Um, you have any thoughts, Preston? No, no, no. Okay. All right. Um, does anybody else have anything they wish to share? Okay. I'll ask again before we're done. How much time do we have? We're halfway through. Okay. Huh. <laughs> I'm amazed. That's right. Amazed. <laughs> okay. Um, so we've been talking about this change of basis. Um, I want to back up a little bit. What 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 is it that I have to learn about myself before I become willing to do what needs to be done to make this change of basis? Before I need to do something so simple as to follow the words in the book instead of understanding and explaining and interpreting them and and just kind of revising them to my own thinking, adapting them to you know my superior intellect or whatever. What 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 do I need to realize? Um, you know, last year I had a had a, a pretty amazing invitation to go to uh, Europe for a few weeks to give some workshops to some uh, SA folks over there. And the man that took me through the big book has given hundreds of workshops in AA like that, and I've never I've never given one before, not not all to myself the, the whole weekend. I listened to him many times uh, on on uh, CDs and so forth, and I, you know, listened to him many times over the phone or in person. Um, but I felt led to call him up and ask him, and he gave me some really, really good suggestions that were very helpful. One of the things that he said, I, sh I forgot to lead with this, um, but he, he leads with this every time. I am not an expert. I'm just a satisfied customer. I like that. There's not any, I cannot afford to be an expert. There's no special class of citizen in this fellowship. You know, we are all sexaholics. And if I get special, then I'm in trouble because I am a broken, uh, needy sexaholic just like you. I do not have within me what it takes to stay sober today. And if I lose sight of that, then um, I'm not safe. And actually, neither are you. Um, if I'm not sober, it is not good. I do I do not need to be running out here uh, around with the rest of you if I'm not sober. So, um, um, yeah, I'm not an expert. I'm, I'm just a satisfied customer. Um, and there was a number of other suggestions that he gave that were really good for a, like a weekend workshop. But one thing he said that he started doing, he actually heard it first. From my current sponsor, Bill, um, who gives a talk on the cycle of addiction out of the doctor's opinion. And he told me I had heard Bill do this before, but I'd never put it together the way Scott then, you know, explained to me um, to do it. And, and I did it in Europe and I really like it and I've done it ever since. So there's a page uh, in the doctor's opinion. And I apologize. I got a third edition here. So I think it's a couple off. Um, it, 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 uh, it's, um, there's no forward to the fourth edition in, in this book, so that adds two extra pages. Um, I, I believe if you've got a fourth edition with you, it's XXVI 
I-I-I-28. It's on 26 in, in, in my version. But but there's uh, one paragraph here. Um, and if you either read or, or get a volunteer to read, I don't know. The men and women? Men and women down okay. down to there. Yeah, if you want to. Andrew? These brave folks on the front row. It was the only available seat when I walked in. <laughs> men and women and then over to where? Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Sensation is so elusive that while they admit is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. Okay, um, so this is talking about alcohol, okay? Does it apply to lust? I think it does for me. Now, the, this book was written by alcoholics for alcoholics, uh, but it's the, tr the tradition and the experience of our fellowship that when we apply this to our lust recovery, <clears throat> um, we get a, a happy and joyous freedom we could otherwise never know. Um, so <laughs> I've read this many times before, hearing it explained in this simple way, and it's been very significant for me. But what I learn here is that lust is not really my problem. Sobriety is my problem. That's what I can't handle. Sobriety causes a state in me, which the big book, describes as restless, irritable, and discontent. Not having a drink, be it alcohol, lust, whatever. That's that's my base state, restless, irritable, discontent. The white book calls it inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. Maybe that's a little different, but it's the same. All it is is I can't stand it. I can't stand being sober. And... That's hard to admit um, for me, um, but that is my truth. I don't feel normal when I'm sober. I don't feel safe when I'm sober. I don't feel connected. So I just feel something is wrong. And sooner or later, I have this idea that I could get relief. And different people seek relief in different ways, That, but the one that caught me, just like a 
lure catches a fish is this whole lust cycle. And so I've got this baseline state that I can't stand. Then I have what is called this physical allergy by the doctor who wrote back in 1935. I just have one drink. That's all, just one. But this allergy is such that I have maybe one way to say it is it's a paradoxical appetite um, or an unnatural appetite. A natural appetite, uh, a functional, healthy appetite, is one that causes me to seek something. And then when I find that thing, say I'm hungry, I find some food, or I'm thirsty, I, I find some water. When I take it in, the appetite decreases. This paradoxical appetite is that if I'm thirsty and I have one drink, then the thirst increases. When I have two drinks, the thirst increases even more. And that leads to a binge, an out-of-control cycle of lusting, drinking. And, and the book uses the term craving. I use the term craving all the time. But it was to describe an appetite that I had before I had taken the first drink. The book of AA talks about the phenomenon of craving that develops after the first drink. And that's the allergy. That's the part that makes me hopeless. Because if I have a drink, it's out of control. If I don't have a drink, I'm sober. And and, and, and I can't stand that. There's no happy medium where I can just control, have a few drinks, enjoy, and get comfortable and stay that way. It always leads to this spree, which eventually ends in, God, do I wake up in jail? What have I done? You know, all kinds of consequences. I try to push them away, and I'm in remorse, and I make this resolution. Oh, I'm not going to do that again. And then... I don't have a drink, and what does that do? That gets me sober, which gets me right back to the beginning of the cycle. And I go round and around and around, and without a different solution. I mean, I've got to be at this restless, irritable, discontent, inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. And instead of going down into, like the clock, instead of going down, into the first drink, seeking that relief that way. I've got to seek a different kind of relief. I've got to find a different way to deal with inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. And and I've also got to understand the incredible draw that I have, just like getting sucked down a whirlpool or something, that, that I've got to be so careful about how I walk and how I act. And what I've got to change. only thing I've got to change is everything, is what they told me. And um, that is what gets me to the point that I become willing to make a decision to change my basis for living. Now, as far as the big book goes, which is the instructions for working the steps for our program, that part we read at the beginning of page 77 tells me the stuff in the white book 
on the steps is not instructions for working the steps. It refers, that, that passage refers me back to this. This is where the instructions are for working the steps. Um, this book tells me that the third step is a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. So, Joe and Charlie said, three frogs are on a log and two of them decide to jump off. How many are left? Shout out the answer if you know it. Three. Because three minus zero is three. Two of them decided to jump off, but they haven't carried out the decision yet. Step three is a decision. So, see if we can get this one right. What step do you turn your will and life over to the care of God? Four. Four through twelve. You make the decision to do it in three, and you carry it out in the remaining steps. So, this is important to me. Um, because if I decide to turn something over to you, then it belongs to you um, once I carry that decision out. Um, and if it's my car, you know, it's like, well, now it's your car. So I make a decision to turn my will and my life over to God. If I carry out this, that decision, what does that mean about my time? It doesn't belong to me. What does it mean about my relationships? doesn't belong to me. My job, my money, my attention, my body parts. Um, nothing belongs to me if I turn it over. Now, I've got a God that entrusts it back to me <laughs> to do with as he would have me do. And it, all I have to do is try to seek out what that is and do it. Things get a lot simpler. I'm not saying they get easy. But the biggest thing is that there continue to be problems, and things inside of me that block me from doing that. And so that's my number one priority in the remaining steps, as it says in step four, to face and be rid of the things in myself that are blocking me. Now, so I, I got a great deal of value out of working through the instructions in this book, focusing really carefully exactly on the way they are worded in here, and, and with the sponsor who had done the same. Now, there are two, two things, um, big things left to that. One is, you know, once I go through the instructions with the sponsor, I still have a lot of work left to do, learning how to apply the principles I'm learning here in my life one day at a time. If I make a decision to turn my salary over to you, well, I get my salary, you know, actually, I currently I get my salary monthly. So I can't turn it over to you any faster than I receive it. And if I make a decision to turn my will and my life over to God, I get my life one day at a time, one moment at a time. I can't turn it over any faster than I receive it. I cannot carry out my step three decision completely until I am done. I can't practice these principles in all my affairs until I am done having new affairs. Not, <laughs> not, yeah, not that kind of affair. Um, so 
I've got to I've got to show up ready <laughs> with my books for class. I got to show up ready to learn again how these principles apply to my life today in this 24 hours. Um, the other thing is that's not anywhere in this book is how do I apply this to lust sobriety? How do I stay sober from lust? And so that's one thing that I started to do personally more of when I when I got when I started doing these sobriety 101 talks. The instructions for working the steps are not in this white book, but there are very specific instructions on how to stay sober from lust. And um they're actually throughout the book. The way I can recognize something as an instruction is very <laughs> interesting historically. In the first four years of AA, Bill Wilson had a version of the big book that was diff slightly different than the one that was eventually published. It's sometimes called the original version or sometimes called the multi-list because it was some kind of weird pre-Xerox way of making copies and and he had a few hundred of these that were circulating around to the early members. And when they published the first edition of the big book, there were some changes made. Because Bill was a salesman from New York and a stockbroker, and he was a little bit bossy. And he didn't, didn't say, you know, you might want to think about this. He would just say, you need to do this. And so... That original version was full of directions. It would say things like, <clears throat> you need to accept these ideas or else reread the book, and if you can't get it, just throw it away. Stuff like that. They wanted him to change that because <laughs> alcoholics, just a lot of them didn't like being told what to do. The first line of how it works said, Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our directions. And it got changed to path. And my sponsor had this way of going through the book and, and explaining and proving very, very effectively that the path refers to the directions in the book. And it no longer says you need to do this when there's a direction that said we did this. So anytime they do something, I need to do it. If I want to thoroughly follow their path, their directions, I want to do what they did, then I need to do it. So when I go through the book, I look for the, those things where they took an action, and then I, I need to make sure I took that action. And so <clears throat> I can do this with the white book. And there's a part of the white book that's really good. How much time we got? Uh, 15, about 15 minutes. Okay. So might want to take about five off of that. Yeah, well, I want to, I want to, I want to kind of... Kind of finish soon and, and have a little Q and A or, or people share open okay. mic. Um, so there is a section of the white book on page one fifty seven, overcoming lust and temptation, and then it's followed by how I overcame my obsession with lust. And there's eighteen numbered points. Some people call this the eighteen wheeler. I think that's as good a name as any. Um, and it has some very specific points that um, can be used. Um, stop practicing the compulsion. Stop feeding the obsession. For, participate in the fellowship of the program. Um, there are specific recommendations 
on prayers that I can take. And I, if I develop the habit of looking for these, um, my current sponsor gives this instruction. And I, I had something pretty similar. It wasn't exactly the same. Um, but he gives an instruction that I sometimes give to people who are struggling um, with uh, with lust sobriety. There's about nine or ten prayers in this 18-wheeler. Well, take a three-by-five index card if you're having trouble and go through Find every prayer that's in the 18-wheeler. Write it down small, you know, all on one index card. So you have all the prayers on one, front and back. Get it laminated so it doesn't get tore up in your wallet or whatever. And then carry around with you every, everywhere. And get in the habit of taking it out and looking at it and saying one or more of those prayers a dozen times a day at least. And and that, to my part of my brain, that sounds extreme. But, you know, I used to be a cigarette smoker, and I would find time 20 or 30 times a day to take five minutes <laughs> and smoke a cigarette. And it's amazing how much time I used up doing that. Um, 30 minutes, 150, that's two and a half hours. Two and a half hours a day just smoking, smoking a cigarette. Um, and often I had to go someplace special so I could do that and, you know, exclude just about any other activity. Um, it, it There is time, in a, and I spent... Way more time than that, lusting. Um, but if I develop this habit of saying prayers like this throughout the day, then that habit's going to be there when I have this crazy moment, and I have to, um, and I need I need something to save me from that insane choice of picking up the first drink. Um, and and so this has worked for me, and it's worked for a lot of folks. Um, so there's not really time to, to go through this. I believe we did on those old recordings. We, I think we went through the 18-wheeler. I think we probably went through a lot of other stuff. Um, but um, We have another hour. So. Yeah, yeah, there was like 12, 12, uh, 12 uh, hour-and-a-half long sessions on that. But um, So what I'd like to do is leave some time. Uh, we can finish early, or we can... Um, have anybody who would like to share anything um, or ask anything or, um, you know, please, you know, this is, you know, God God speaks uh, to us through each other in these meetings and and he uses uh, any uh, and all of us that, that will put ourselves in his disposal. So please. If you got anything at all that you'd like to share, uh, please, um, we can pass you the mic or, or you can come up. Um, thank you. And you asked me earlier if I had anything to share. And at the time, I, I do feel God was in this room. So thank you for opening up and sharing. And there's something that um, I read the other day that stuck out. It's, it's actually from another uh, fellowship uh, that we don't get the material from. But it says, so many times addicts have sought the rewards of hard work without the labor. And I've known you for 16 years off and on. And, uh, you know, I see the rewards of your labor. You, you, you haven't just wanted it without doing the labor. And I know what you've gone through. And, and I really want to say thank you for sharing here openly and honestly. And, and, and I do really appreciate that. So with that, I'm going to turn the floor over to you guys and anybody want to, Speak, please feel free to come up and ask questions. 
have a question. I'm Tom C. Recovering lust addict. You mentioned putting a gun to your head. Was that figuratively or literally? And if it was literally, where did you go at that moment to save yourself? What tools did you use? Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Um, yeah, um, I, I don't own a gun. I didn't own a gun at that time. But the reason I say that is very real um, for me. Um, I began keeping sexual secrets. I began keeping secrets about my deviant sexual thoughts when I was six years old. And as I went along, I become increasingly afraid from the, that if anyone ever knew about my and, and and I'll tell you just kind of simply, uh, I was sexually attracted to other children's feet, and and I eventually would masturbate over and over to fantasies about rubbing my penis against certain boys' feet. Very ashamed of that, and um, but increasingly terrified that if anyone found out about that uh, that about me, there I could not possibly survive or live, and and so. I had that kind of fear inside of me, and that broke that that year in early 2001 because I had I had done things that I couldn't someone else knew, and I couldn't deny that, and 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 the fear would not go away. The old solutions that I used to medicate, I just could not get comfortable. I could not feel safe. I had this growing sense of terror and panic in the background all the time, and I couldn't take it anymore. And and I remember thinking very clearly, you know, this this has got to stop. There's no way out of this. And and my my mind, you know, I, I thought, well, I could go, I could go ask for help. I could tell someone and, and try to get help. And my voice, my own voice said, that would be suicide. And my voice replied back, yeah, but you are really, really thinking about putting a gun to your head. So if you do that and things get worse, you still got that option. Now, at the time I was practicing medicine, so um, there are other ways to do it besides a gun. I have a man that I used to sponsor uh, who lost his medical license also. He didn't have a conviction because his um, uh, victims were patient, adult patients, not, not children. But he never got over that. And as an emergency room doctor, he had seen enough kind of botched suicides come into the ER. When he got to that point, he put a bullet in his carotid artery. And that could be me. Um, so what happened to me at that moment, I was not yet in, in the recovery rooms. I started telling things that I had never told. And it took me about six months to get it all out. But I put something in motion. I said things that I couldn't take back, and I got this this thing moving. This 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 flood <laughs> that got me to to the meadows in in two thousand and in September, where where um, I told all my secrets, and uh, and then it was like jumping out of an airplane. I had no more control. You once you're once you're out of the airplane. I've done it one time. I, I've jumped out of an airplane fifteen thousand feet one time with a a parachutist on my back. Um, uh, who had done it many times, and uh, he had the parachute on his back. And um, but once you're out of the airplane, all thoughts of getting back in the airplane kind of just kind of leave your mind, and 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 you get very focused. <laughs> so 
like my my all my plans for the future kind of went on hold um, for like the next few minutes while we were making that fifteen thousand foot drop, and that's how I felt when I got everything out the table. So the tools that I had w- were, you know, sheer terror and and willingness, you know, to do to to you know, please help me. Uh, you know, there's a prayer right in the right in the second page of the 18 wheeler says, "I'm I'm powerless. Please help me." And that's all I had at that moment. So, I don't know if that answers your question, but thanks for asking it. We have time for about one more quick question. Anybody has one? Uh, I'm Patrick, sexaholic. Um, a great deal of what you talked about absolutely resonated, and I you know want to encourage you and thank you for sharing all that because it, it, it makes me feel less alone. Um, one thing I, I don't feel like you talked about, and if you did, I didn't hear it, was about now, after having a lot of recovery, after being in this so long, about having joy now, about feeling better, about having a happier life. And just, I mean, selfishly, it, it would help me to hear you talk about, you know, the encouraging of, of the light of the tunnel, what's on the other side. Um, do, do, if you're comfortable sharing something along those lines, that that makes sense. Thanks. Okay. Um, thanks, Patrick. Um, I'll try to, we just got a few minutes. Okay. I'll try to keep it brief. Um, there's a thing at the bottom of page 14, the big book. Um, my friend has emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. Um, there will be trials and low spots ahead. Um I've had a lot of joy in my recovery, um, and the memory of that joy is very important to me when I go through low spots. Um, it's almost the exact opposite of when I would have joy in my disease, and I would have this memory in the background of the horrible things I had done that people didn't know about. So I always had this terror inside of all my joy. Today, I have difficult times. I'm struggling with trauma right now. I tell you what, I have not been in danger of acting out. I don't see any any sign that I have been in danger of acting out through these difficult times. And I know that God has and will use, uh, has used me and continues to use me to the extent that I let him to be of service to people in the same way they were have been to me and continue to be uh, to me in this fellowship. So I am not alone. Even when my trauma is is telling me or making me feel in my body like I'm totally alone and hopeless, I am not alone and I am not hopeless. And um, so that's very powerful. The 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 other thing, and, and this is a good way for me to close, uh, is on page 124 in the family afterwards. Um, Henry Ford once made a wise remark to the effect that experience is the thing of extreme value in life. That is true only if one is willing to turn the past to good account. We grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. The alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset of the family, and frequently it is almost the only one. Uh, 
This painful past may be of infinite value to others still struggling with their problem. We think each family which has been relieved owes something to those who have not, and when the occasion requires, each member of it should be only too willing to bring former mistakes, no matter how grievous, out of their hiding places. Showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. And when I see that I'm learning how to be in conscious contact with a God who's capable of taking the worst things that I've ever done and making something beautiful out of it. I can't tell you there's something more real about that than any kind of, you know, sexual high I've ever felt, you know. Um, It's subtle and it's powerful and it's real and... I know everything when I, when I'm in touch with that, um, you know, I know everything's okay. And, and so, yeah, there's a joy. It's, it's different people experience it in different ways, but, but, uh, I, I, I can always relate to the way they talk about it in the book. And, um, so that, that's something I'm willing to keep coming back for. Thanks. All right, guys, well, we're going to wrap this up. Um, so we're going to have a quick break, and then we all reconvene in the worship center. If you haven't heard of Bill S., Bill's been around our fellowship 25 years now, I believe, 26 years. Awesome. He's uh, this guy's sponsor and my grand sponsor, so uh, wonderful to hear him. Then we, if you want to hear the second part of this, come back here at, am I looking at this right? I think it's, uh, I'm looking at the wrong page. Come back here at 1.30, and uh, this room, same room, and we'll conclude with the second part of this. So. Thanks, Preston. Thank you, guys. Uh, we want to circle up? Oh, yes. Step <clears throat> on in. Who's with us in these meetings, who blesses us, who cares for us, who guides us when we're sick. Our Father, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.